right, well, good morning and welcome. Uh, as Pastor Billy mentioned, my name's Alan, one of the pastors, and we'll be looking at uh, Daniel chapter 10, so I want to invite you to turn there. And uh, as I was collaborating with Pastor Billy on the sermon beforehand, as I often try to do, just to glean from his wisdom and insight and in preaching, I told him I can, I'm pretty sure that it's going to be a long sermon, and he said, but it's going to be a good one. So, I'm letting you know, I can guarantee one of them. <laughs> we'll, see if I, we'll see about the other. It could be a swing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, well, as we come to chapters 10 through 12, we're coming to the end of the book. And uh, chapters 10 through 12 in this section is the final vision that God gives Daniel. And... As you'll see when we read the chapter, uh, this is not actually even the vision yet. This is just the, the prelude to the vision, the preface to the vision that comes in chapter 11. But in chapter 10, D- Daniel describes this encounter with this heavenly messenger. And uh, it's 21 verses to describe the in- just the encounter, not even the message, just the encounter. So that's what we're going to read uh, this morning and see what the Lord has for us in this. So this is God's word, Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So that's an editorial note. Now Daniel begins to tell that story in the first person. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. And I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? 
For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And he spoke to me, and I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. For there is none who contends by my side except Michael, your prince. And then we'll stop in verse 1 of the next chapter. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And even when we come across passages like this that are difficult to discern their meaning and their application to our present lives, Um, It is a reminder of how much we need you, how much we need your Spirit's illumination on our hearts to see and receive all of the food that you have for us in this chapter. We pray that you would take these words and feed them to us, Lord. May it be life and nourishment for our souls. Teach us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a limited appreciation for voicemail. I think voicemail is a good thing, Um, and when somebody's voicemail message, I'm of the opinion that it should just say, this is Alan, leave a message, beep, you know, just just kind of, uh, and that that can be helpful, I I don't mind leaving messages, Um, but there's aspects of voicemail that that really irritate me, and part of it is, um, if the voicemail is super long, like I don't need to know all the reasons you couldn't come to the phone, Um, just... I just want to make sure that it's you. That, yep, that's the voice. I recognize your voice. That's kind of all I need, right? Um, so, then it, so the whole time when it, when it goes on and on, I'm, I'm taking a deep breath, ready to leave a message, and it, it just keeps going. And then you think, okay, here comes the beep. You take the deep breath, and the automated voice proceeds to instruct you how to leave a voicemail. So I grew up on the planet Jupiter. I have no idea how to leave a voicemail. Thank you for telling me that at the sound of the tone, please leave your message. Because that just wasted a few seconds of my life. And then, and then it's not even over. So you think at the sound of the beep, please leave your message. You take a deep breath to leave the message. Oh no, she's not done. Now she's going to instruct you on what to do after you leave the message. Because I had no idea what to do after I left the message. I mean, I thought, was I supposed to just stay on on the phone for hours until the person suddenly came on the line? Oh, oh, you may hang up after you leave the message. Oh, thank you. I was not sure what to do when I left this message. Thank you for allowing me and instructing me to hang up the phone after I left the message. So you can sense my irritation with that kind of thing. So I I have an appreciation for voicemail, but when it's pointing out the obvious, I'm like, this is so annoying. This is so annoying. And what does that have to do with this text? Well, often the dealings of God in our lives in human history are not as obvious as how to leave a voicemail. They're not immediately transparent. We do need to be instructed. And in this passage, we see Daniel as a troubled, saddened man, a confused man who doesn't know what to do. And God shows up through a messenger 
who speaks to him. And as we said, the message itself doesn't come until chapter 11, but the Holy Spirit had Daniel spend 21 verses just just describing the arrival of this messenger and what that encounter was like. And there's a reason for that. Um, what What did he experience when the messenger showed up? What was happening behind the scenes when Daniel was fasting and praying? And it's recorded this way to give God's people certain realities that they will need to endure. Often God's people don't know what to do. We don't know how to make sense of certain things. That can be anything from what's happening in the world to something we read in the Bible or to a trial we may be going through personally. Sometimes we just feel helpless. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. And this chapter in those moments can help us to know what to do when we don't know what to do. Which is like often, right? That is more often than we realize. So we need the truths that God is giving us in chapter 10. And so stated most broadly in the main point, I would say, is God strengthens his people when they turn to him in uncertainty. He will strengthen us. Now let's proceed to talk about how that happens. Point number one, we seek God in prayer. Now in those days, Daniel was mourning and praying and fasting that we read. Um, where it says he didn't anoint himself. Some translations say uh, he didn't put on any lotion. Uh, One commentator said he wouldn't even use aftershave. So I appreciated that point. That may be what it means. (laughs) But why is that? What's going on with Daniel? We're not told specifically why he's mourning and praying and fasting, but there are a few possibilities that we can pick up from elsewhere in the book. I mean, it's been a roller coaster for Daniel. There's been Seasons of favor with God, and then seasons of being thrown in lion's dens. And I'm sure at this point, at the end of his life, he's wondering, what is happening to God's people? There's this visions of suffering, and visions of glory, and these things have been coming, and some of these were very confusing to Daniel. I think that's why uh, verse 1 at the end of it points out, and this time he understood the word. And that understanding of the vision. Like, hey, he got this one. The ones before, he didn't. Um, But leading up to this one, it's a period of confusion, of mourning, of praying, and of fasting. And, And now we're told it's the third year of the reign of King Cyrus. So the history there, this king of Persia had conquered Babylon, where God's people were living in exile. And we know initially, at least from Ezra chapter 1, that that Cyrus had issued a decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But now it's the third year. Not much progress has been made. Not many of God's people were moving to Jerusalem. Many of them probably, we think, chose to stay back in Babylon. And it would seem all hope is lost. So here Daniel is, praying and fasting on behalf of his people and on behalf of the situation. He was concerned for the welfare of God's people. He grieved over their spiritual state. He was not radically self-focused like we so often are in prayer. And then you just add to that Daniel's own weakness. Remember, this is an 80-something-year-old man. He had already been shown visions earlier in the book, and some of them were very confusing. So despair likely would have been setting in for him personally. Is God really going to act? Where does all of this end up? What does all this stuff mean? And he was so affected by it that it made him mourn and even fast for three weeks. In other words, he disciplined himself in prayer because of the situation that he found himself in. 
And thanks be to God, God hears the prayers of his people and he responds. God strengthens his people when they turn to him in prayer during times of uncertainty, just like Daniel did. But it's not just a call in this passage to turn to God in prayer like Daniel did. That's at least there. But we've got to remember that at this point in redemptive history, we're standing on the side of the new covenant, which brings even better news. It's not just that we're called to pray, but we're told that we have Jesus who stands at the right hand of the Father making intercession for his people. We turn to him, Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you realize that? He is praying for you right now. The reason we pray in Jesus' name, that's not just a, a, a spiritual period mark at the end of a prayer. No, it's, it's an acknowledgement that apart from Jesus, we cannot even approach the Father. But he has forgiven us. He's justified us. He's adopted us into his family. All of that because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And now we can come to the Father in prayer. And when we get there, what do we see? We see Jesus, our great high priest, our great intercessor, the one who made an end of all our sin, standing there, interceding before God the Father on our behalf before we ever opened our mouth. And he takes our weak and feeble prayers and our cries for help. And and it's not just that he hears them, but he intercedes on our behalf. And any and every prayer we make, think about this, is made effective not by our own eloquence or volume, but by the one who made an end of all of our sin and makes our prayers effective by interceding on our behalf. Oh, what, what better news the gospel brings in this case. It's not just a call to pray, but it's a call to come to Jesus who is praying on your behalf. What wonderful truth. So where do we find our own hearts? Troubled, confused, afraid, concerned, disappointed. Are we first turning to God in prayer with those things? I can tell you from my own experience, I confess I do not do that. I often address these experiences by these feelings, these experiences that I just listed, by trying to fix them myself. Maybe fighting against whatever brought them about to begin with, whether that be the government or another person or my boss or this coworker or my spouse or my child or this pastor or this church member or this church experience. All of those things that brought the trouble, confusion, fear, concern, disappointment, all of those things, I'm going to fight against those things because that's how they will get fixed. That's how things will be made right. I will take matters into my own hands rather than bringing these things to the Lord in prayer. Or maybe if I don't even have the energy to fight, I just step back and and complain and wallow in self-pity. And I think this is really dangerous. I think there's a trend in the church world today that even seems to promote this form of dealing with these things, that the way to deal with hurts and pains and disappointments is to create, and just just using cultural language here, is to create safe spaces where people can tell their stories so their voices can be heard. Sounds good, right? But often, this just becomes a form of group therapy, and the gospel never actually gets applied. God never has a chance to speak into the, speak truth into the situation from his word. 
Those hurts, pains, disappointments never actually get brought to the Lord and laid at his feet so that the gospel can bring hope and healing to them. That's how those things, are, that's how we experience hope and healing is by letting the gospel speak to those things. There's not anything particularly redemptive in merely confessing things and sharing it with other people. No, we must take the next step and bring the gospel to bear into the various ways we may have been sinned against. So we want to caution against that. Daniel did not just find a group therapy session to go to. No, he, 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 what did he do with these things that he was experiencing? He brought them to the Lord in prayer and fasted and mourned and prayed and he cried out to God. That's what God's people do. And God strengthens them when they pray and cry out to him in these times of uncertainty. Daniel saw the situation and he disciplined himself to pray. He sought the Lord earnestly. So we take in our fears and pains and disappointments and fears to the Lord in prayer. And I think at, at least most often when we don't, and I'm just saying how I struggle to do it as well, at least one thing that's behind it when I'm honest is it's because I doubt the efficacy of prayer, honestly, in my heart. Is, it, is this really going to work? Does God really respond? Um, we can even use good biblical doctrines as excuses, like the sovereignty of God. And we, we might not say it, but we may really functionally believe, well, if God's sovereign, why pray? And so it becomes an excuse not to pray. But as we'll see in the next section, in the mystery of providence, God in fact responds when his people turn to him in prayer. In times of uncertainty, he does. Is there an element of mystery there? Sure. But we can't uh, hold on to one thing in scripture and ignore the other part of scripture. Is God sovereign? Yes. Does he call people to pray? Yes. Does God seem to act and respond in response to his people's prayer? Absolutely. Are all of those true at the same time? Yes. How do they all fit together? I don't know. They do. And we can cling to that and we can come to him in honest prayer and not hide behind one doctrine as an excuse to get out of another. So we want to be careful about that. And in this next section, the messenger shows Daniel that in prayer, there are some spiritual realities that we need to come to terms with. So point two, we come to terms with spiritual realities. While Daniel was praying, he has a vision of a man. Look at verse 5. And it's not really clear who this man was. Some, may, some think that it may have been the pre-incarnate Christ showing up in the Old Testament because in the book of Revelation, when John sees the risen Jesus, the way John describes him is almost exactly the way he's described here. So I, I get that view as a, as a legitimate possibility. The majority view seems to be that this is an angelic being a messenger from heaven and not Christ in particular, especially because in verse 13, he's battling the prince of Persia, which held him up for 21 days, and he needed Michael, the archangel's help, to, to get past him. And then when, after he speaks to Daniel, he goes back to the fight. Um, so that doesn't seem like something Christ would do, in my opinion, but either way, it's clear that this messenger, whoever he is, was sent by God. And while his specific message doesn't come until chapter 11, the fact that he even shows up and talks about what it took to get there is itself a peek behind the curtain into this spiritual realm. So for one, the way this guy's described in verses 5 and 6, the, the way he's described there with the, the, the bronze and the belt and all of these different things, God is sending a signal in that description. He's conveying a message. 
See, all these details are priestly images. They're reminiscent of the temple, which had been desecrated many years earlier, but was about to be rebuilt. For this man to appear in this way is to highlight the fact that God sees and he knows and he is acting on behalf of his people. He's not deaf to their situation. Next, notice the effect of the revelation in verse 7. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. The people around him didn't see it, but they felt it. There must have been some sort of earthquake. Did y'all feel that Sunday night or Monday night, whenever that was? The earthquake, they said it was the biggest one in Midland, I guess, recorded. 3.7 or something like that. Yeah, it was crazy. And then somebody on, on next door commented that they were in the middle of watching a documentary on the Twin Towers. And when the Twin Towers collapsed, the earthquake came through. Could you imagine? <laughs> That's a 4D experience right there. So something like that happened. These, these, the people with Daniel knew that something was going on and they, they ran and hid. For Daniel, verse 8, the vision itself just zapped him of his strength. It says his radiant appearance changed. Other translations say some form of uh, like my natural color complexion turned pale. Um, which is to say, you might say he turned white as a corpse. And in verse 9, he just collapses or passes out or falls into some sort of semi-conscious state. Then the man comes to him and raises him up and speaks to him, verse 10 and 11. And as he's raising him up, he's trembling. He can barely stand. And the messenger speaks. And then it happens all over again. Verse 15, his face is on the ground. He's speechless. Verse 17, he has no strength. He can hardly breathe. And like many others in the Old Testament who encountered God or a messenger from God, Daniel is laid low. He's essentially traumatized by this experience. And you know what? This is what happens when sinful man, sinful, finite man, encounters the holiness of God. There is no place for a casual cavalier attitude in the presence of a holy God. We cannot remain unaffected. Just thinking about 20 years ago when the Twin Towers did fell, we were all affected by those events if you were alive at that time. I was in my last semester of nursing school, sitting in a classroom in Midland College, and we were watching these events unfold that morning. We were all glued to the TV. We were stunned. You probably remember where you were when it happened, and, and the, the sense of speechlessness and fear and sobriety. We were, to various degrees, traumatized, both by what was happening, the loss of life unfolding before our eyes on national television, and by what it meant for our future. Are we as safe as we thought we were? Who is behind all of this? Will there be more attacks? Is another city going to happen in an hour from now? What happens next? Hardly anyone alive at that time was unaffected by those events, which we just commemorated yesterday. But Daniel's encounter with this messenger and what he said had that kind of impact on him, but on a much bigger scale. See, it wasn't just what he saw in the appearance of the man. But it was what the man revealed. And so, what was that? Well, remember the vision itself doesn't get revealed to chapter 11, but what the man does reveal to Daniel is what was happening behind the scenes while Daniel was praying. So the picture is this messenger is trying to get to Daniel, but he got delayed for 21 days, not just because of a traffic jam or something like that, but because a demonic spirit, described here as the prince of the kingdom of Persia, so this would not be a, a physical prince that 
reference seemed to, seems to be a spiritual or demonic prince uh, who withstood this messenger. So it's a picture of an angel and a demon battling each other for 21 days straight, and the angel wasn't making much progress. And then he reveals that another angel, Michael, came to him and helped him, and between the two of them, they were able to drive back this demonic spirit at least enough for the messenger to get past him to get to Daniel, after which the message is delivered and he's got to make his return journey, he's going to face him yet again. So there's not many examples of this kind of thing in the Bible, but this is a picture behind the curtain of what happens in what we've, we might call spiritual warfare. This is something that is very real. Often God doesn't peel back the curtain to let us see it, but here he did. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this picture seems to be a picture of spiritual forces colliding in the heavenly places in, in a spiritual realm that we don't see with natural eyes, but God allowed Daniel to see and had him record it here for us so we can learn about this. The Bible's clear that there are things happening behind the scenes that we don't see. It assures us there is a spiritual battle going on. And that is the main takeaway from this section. There are spiritual realities at play in any given situation. And again, it's not just the things we can see, but the good news is that even though it's things we can't see, Jesus came to conquer Satan. And at the cross, Satan and his minions were defeated. The victory has been won. We sing the song, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Yes, he rages on, but he is bound. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has already rendered him defeated. He can kick and scream on his way out, and you bet he will till the last moment when God says enough is enough. But until then, there is no question for the Christian who's in charge and how all of this ends up. Jesus defeated Satan when he paid it all at the cross. Amen? But think about this from Daniel's perspective. Going back to that, all he knew, all Daniel knew, was the delay. All he knew was praying and fasting and waiting, and nothing was happening. All he knew was these many years of confusing things happening in a world around him that seems to be falling apart. He had no idea what was going on behind the scenes until it was shown to him. But so often us, we like Daniel, don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You can think of a period in our life before we had children and battling through infertility. And a comforting truth early on was that God is sovereign. And that was a help for us because we said, well, we don't understand why God allowed the trial of infertility, but we know that God is sovereign, which means it wasn't an accident and that we can, we can trust him. But over time, as that got stretched out and that turned into many years, um, the truth of God's sovereignty began to actually be a struggle. And the reason I say that is because at some point, I realized, okay, if that's true, then it's not just that God allowed this trial in. If he's, but if he's really sovereign, he could snap his finger and we could be pregnant. 
Why doesn't he do that? So that, that, that's the other side that became the sovereignty of God's not necessarily a comfort because he could do it and he's not. Why is he not acting on our behalf? And over time, I came to realize that that struggle is not really a struggle with God's sovereignty. That is a struggle with God's goodness. Do I believe that he's good in his sovereignty? That's what I was struggling to believe. I had no trouble believing he's fully in control. But it sure felt like he was out to get us. It sure felt like he didn't have good things in store and in mind for us. Little did he know, little did we know that at that time, God was preparing two little boys for us and preparing our hearts for them. And trusting God's sovereignty was a struggle at the time, but looking back on it, I could see God was doing good things at that time. And he was bringing us to come to trust that not only that God is sovereign, but that God is good towards his people in his sovereignty. See, we don't have to know the details of what God is doing and why he's doing it when we're going through the thing, but we can know with solid growing confidence that he is sovereign, that no moment is out of his control, and that he is eternally good. We can stand on these truths when we don't get all our questions answered. When we seem to be experiencing God's delays, we can look to God and, and trust him and know that he's, he's doing things that even if it doesn't make sense to us at the time, God may never let us peek behind the curtain of what he's doing. But we don't need to because he's revealed himself in his word to be a good God who's up to good things for his people. So when it comes to God's activity or God's delays or God's silence, we don't need to see exactly all the details of what he's doing. But this passage shows us he is in fact working. We used to sing a song many years ago that says, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. And he does. Daniel got to see one slice of what's going on behind the scenes in chapter 10. But ordinarily, God's way of working is that we don't always get to see what's happening behind the scenes. But God's not being cruel by withholding that information from us. John Calvin helpfully states, God does not cease to regard us with favor even while he may not please to make us conscious of it, of his favor. For he does not always place it before our eyes, but rather hides it from our view. And we infer from this God's constant care for our safety. Although not exhibited exactly in the way which our minds may conceive and comprehend, God surpasses all our comprehension in the way in which he provides for our safety. You know, we think, gee, God, wouldn't it be so much easier if you just showed us what you're doing? Why do you have to be so cryptic about some things? What are you trying to hide? Are you trying to hide? I mean, the, the conspiracy mindset is so easy to adapt with everything around us. And if we're not careful, we can start to think conspiratorially against God. God, what are you hiding? If you're not showing us what you're doing, why are you not showing it to us? What are you trying to keep from us? What are you hiding? Daniel had not even received the message yet. And just these events were enough to totally traumatize him. Could you imagine what would happen to you if God showed up and let you in on all that he was doing at any given moment? Do you really think you could handle that? It, th this thing almost killed Daniel just to find this out. So we can trust that there are good reasons why God does not show us everything that's happening behind the scenes. But he doesn't leave us entirely in the dark, does he? No matter how much we may think and feel that he does leave us in the dark, he's actually given us this book. And by this book, 
He has revealed everything that we need to know about him. And our feelings of being blind and in the dark is more often owing to our lack of familiarity with the God of the Bible than it is, don't believe the lie of the enemy that God is playing some hide and seek game with you. God has revealed himself here. There's a lot we may not know. There's a lot God's not going to reveal to us, but there's a whole lot more that he has revealed to us. And it's in those times we turn to what we do know. We turn to what he has revealed and we find life there. We, we anchor our souls on that. He has revealed so much of himself and his character. We could spend a lifetime studying this book and never find the bottom of all he is. So there's no need to obsess over the things we, that he hasn't shown us. Let's dig deeper into the things he has shown us. And what is clear from scripture will help us understand the less clear providences that God sends our way. We can rest assured things are happening. Spiritual warfare that we don't know about may be taking place, right? We saw that. And if God may seem to delay in answering your prayer, it's not because, just, just you know, remind yourself, if God is delaying, think about Daniel chapter 10. There are things happening, there may be things happening in the spiritual realm that we don't know about that we don't see. So if God delays, it's not because He's at the lake and he's just going to have to get back with you when he gets back in town on Monday. No, God never ceases to work on behalf of his people. He's working in ways we cannot see and we can be content in that. And contentment with God's silence, contentment with God's delays comes from trusting his fatherly heart. He is perfect in his love towards us. All his dealings towards us are for our ultimate good and for his glory. Love the famous Spurgeon quote, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. So well said. These are good, godly, spiritual realities that we want to come to terms with um, as we grow as disciples of Jesus. Because they will prove to be the means of the, the strength that God promises to grant us when we look to him in uncertainty. This will be the truths and the realities that as we cling to that will help us to endure to the end. And that's the next section. We see the strength that God supplies. Point number three, we receive the strength that God supplies. Now we saw earlier all the ways Daniel was physically and mentally affected by this terrifying encounter with this man. But notice too, uh, all of the ways that he was helped. It started in verse 10. When the angel addresses Daniel in this wonderful way, man greatly loved. <laughs> That's such a great phrase. What a tender, beautiful, gracious way to address a man who has collapsed under the weight and fear of what's happening. And then he does it again in verse uh, 15. Where is it? Yeah, verse 11, uh, verse 19, sorry. In verse 19, he addresses him the same way. But in between verses 15 to 17, the angel touches Daniel, raises him up, gives him strength to respond. All he can say when he stands up is, I can't even speak. Then verse 18, the angel addresses him again. And let's look at that. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. Notice in verse 18, where it says, as he spoke to me. This is the second half of, uh, I'm sorry, 19. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened. Look at that. You see that? Verse 19. As he spoke to me, 
I was strengthened. Remember, this is a messenger from God bringing God's word to Daniel. How is Daniel strengthened? He's strengthened by the words that were spoken to him. You know where I'm going with this, right? (laughs) This is God's pattern for his people throughout time. God strengthens his people by his word. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. We say that and we can add to it. And when God speaks, his people are strengthened. This should underscore the importance of being in the word personally. You realize God means to strengthen you as you encounter him in his speaking words in the word of God in the Bible. The Bible is the means by which God strengthens his people. Daniel encountered this. As he spoke, I was strengthened. He actually says it twice. It's the importance of being in the word personally. It shows the importance of corporate worship. Because in corporate worship, when we gather together, we're singing the truth of God's word. And God's imparting strength in that moment to you. As you fix your attention on things that you've forgotten throughout the week. As your mind and heart's been clouded by stresses and pressures of life and work demands and family conflicts and all of these things. We gather with God's people and we sing God's truth. And all of a sudden, these good words that are meant to strengthen us appear before our faces and hearts. And we, we sing them back to God. And when that's happening, God's pouring strength into his people. That's the value of gathering together. There's unlike any, it's unlike any other moment. It's the value of preaching and sitting before God's word and allowing God to feed you through the preaching of the word. It's, it shows, all of that shows the value and importance of gathering together on Sundays. God means to strengthen us by his word. That's what we see God doing in Daniel through the words that were given to him. And notice this, so we don't get discouraged. God doesn't strengthen Daniel all at once. Throughout this chapter, there are several touches where he touched me. He lifted me up. There are several points of contact. There's more ups and downs in this chapter than a Catholic Mass. And life can feel that way sometimes, right? <laughs> the path of progress is, is often slow and steady. We have... Seasons of spiritual highs and seasons of spiritual lows. And we look back over time and growth can feel undiscernible in our hearts. But that does not mean that God is not working. God works slow and steady over time. As Pastor Billy's pointed out before, that's why the Christian life is characterized as a walk, not a sprint. It's a walk. And praise God that it is. Some people may be walking really fast. Some people may be walking really slow. You know what? If you're on your knees crawling and you're moving, God's at work. (laughs) Um, So we, we should adjust expectations. Again, Calvin is helpful on this point. He says, God does not all at once restore to life those whom he has rendered all but lifeless, but he conveys new life by degrees and inspires the dead with fresh animation. And I'm never surprised when God raises us gradually by distinct steps, and cures our infirmity by degrees. But if, and then this, 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 Calvin, man, this is so good. And if even a single drop of his virtue is supplied to us, we should be content with this consolation until he should complete what he has begun within us. One drop of his virtue is an expression of God's consolation, that he is working on your behalf to strengthen you as you turn to him in times of uncertainty, to supply you the grace you need 
for the uncertainties of life, the moments, the difficulties, the trials, the struggles, the overwhelmingness. God wants to pour strength into you, and he'll do it by degrees. What he's essentially saying is Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That single drop of virtue that Calvin referred to, that he sends your way on the path to growth and maturity, that single drop of virtue is an assurance that there is more to come. Why? Because Philippians 1.6 is true. And if he started the good work, he's going to finish the good work. And there's going to be more drops of virtue that are coming your way as he pours strength into your life in various degrees. He is at work. He has not abandoned you. And he will see his work to completion. He leaves no job undone. Do you have unfinished jobs in your house? Maybe home projects that you started and didn't finish? Our wives are great at reminding us of those, right? God has no job that he starts and doesn't finish. He finishes everything that he sets his hands to. And he will finish the work that he's begun in you. He will strengthen us for these things. Now, he does so by the power of the Spirit. Again, thinking about now, trans, you know, fast forward into present day compared to Daniel's day. Now, under the new covenant, the Messiah has come. He's died. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And the Spirit's been sent into the heart of every true believer to strengthen and confirm them. We're not on our own. God's Spirit is with us. And the strength He provides is not just energy. It's not just the equivalent of caffeine or something like that. It is a supernatural work in the heart that actually changes us and empowers us for mission and ministry, to empower us for God's work in the world, to empower us for our own battles. Even when we think about the strength and power that God wants to give us for battles, what comes to your mind when you think of the fact that God wants to strengthen you for the battle? What battle comes to your mind? See, the battle God promises to strengthen us for are spiritual battles. More so than other kinds of battles, be they political or American or something like that. There may be battles for constitutional rights and things like that that need to be waged, no doubt. But the battles God promises to strengthen us for are not tied to national identity. They're not tied to personal ambition. Um, You know, we had in our locker room playing football in high school, we had a a scripture... um, the, the, Lord is, uh, the Lord is able to deliver you from the hands of the enemy, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, th- no, that's not the application of those promises, that the Lord will deliver us from the hands of the rival school. Um, we, we can think that God's promises apply that way. They don't, and we should never confuse these things. The spiritual battles are the ones that are far more significant. Think about the battle against sin and temptation in your own daily life. The battle to trust him when you're not happy with the path you're on. The battle to work through conflict when disunity threatens the church. The battle to cling to sound doctrine when other ideas sound very appealing. The battle to overcome fear in evangelism. The battle to come to church when you're tired and you just want to sleep in. The battle to overcome your addictions, your besetting sins, or your laziness. The battle to bring your hurts your abuse, the ways you were sinned against to Jesus rather than wallowing in your pain looking for various therapeutic outs. The battle to invest in your spiritual formation when your schedule just seems to fight against it. The battle to love and be committed to the local church, the institution that Jesus established for his glory and purchased with his own blood when popular Christianity is telling you there's a better way. Just a battle to wake up and love your spouse again and care for your children again when you're getting little in return from them. Just a battle to stay married and work hard at that relationship. 
See, it's easy. We have enough spiritual battles that we need to be waging, but it's too easy for Christians to spend more time and energy on less important battles than they do on the spiritual battles that confront them every single day. But these are the battles that God will strengthen us for. And after God's word strengthened Daniel, he stood up. And this is why I ended in chapter 11 verse 1. He moved on with the mission that God had given him and he actually went and spoke to the king and strengthened him. It's kind of the 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that God comforts those so that we can, God comforts those in their affliction so that we can comfort others in their affliction. That's what is happening here that Daniel's doing. So don't give up in the fight. God is with you. He sent his spirit to empower you. Keep fighting and God will strengthen you. So to wrap this up, and Daniel, um, Daniel you can bring the team. Eric, you can bring the team. Um, <laughs> are you, just think of some application here. Are you feeling weak or confused? God will strengthen you if you turn to him in your uncertainties. Do you have doubts? Turn to him in your uncertainties and God will Answer those. He will strengthen you. He will show you himself. When you're tired and overwhelmed and ready to despair, oh, turn to him and receive the strength that he provides. Have you gotten to a point where you're not sure that prayer really does any good? Why do it? Why spend the time? It doesn't seem like it makes a difference. Well, turn to him in that uncertainty and he will respond. He wants to do it. He means to do it. He's eager to do it. He promises to do it. He is a loving father who wants you to turn to him, not embarrassed about your uncertainties and doubts and confusion, but bringing those things honestly to him so that he can supply the strength you need to remain faithful to him in those uncertainties. See, doubt and uncertainty, we need to think of that. That's an opportunity to experience God's grace. It shouldn't be a barrier to keep you from God. Doubt and uncertainty is an opportunity to experience grace on a level that you don't experience it when you're feeling filled with faith and confidence. You're you're doubting today? You have uncertainty? Guess what? God's got grace that reaches down that far for you. Don't let it keep you from that storehouse, that, that flood, that waterfall of grace that he wants to pour. No, come and be drenched in his strength and grace and supply in the middle of that uncertainty. That's why we turn to him. He never gets tired of us doing it. So you can turn to him now. You can turn to him tomorrow, the next day. The day after, he never grows weary. He is a loving father who fills our hearts with the Holy Spirit, who delivers all we need for the battle. And if we've never, if anybody has never turned to him savingly and said, I'm going to put my faith in this God. I've trusted these other things Great day to do that. Turn to him and confess your own self-reliance. Confess your sin. Turn from it and expressly put your faith in Jesus saying, I'm going to trust Jesus and what he did on the cross on my behalf because my efforts are completely worthless. And I cast myself on the mercy and grace of Jesus because God will strengthen you when you turn to him in any kind of uncertainty we face. Let's stand together and pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this wonderful grace and strength that you promised to supply. We pray that we would apply these things in our lives, God, that we would be people who turn to you in prayer, that we'd be people who acknowledge and come to terms with spiritual realities that may be uncomfortable to think about, but we must reckon with. Lord, we want to be people who do that, who 
Go to your word and understand what's happening from your perspective. We need that. Help us to have that, Lord. And may we be, as we do that, may we be finding the grace that you promised to supply. Oh, Lord, may your people receive that grace and strength that you promise for these times, Lord. Pour it into them now as we pray, Lord. We look to you. We cling to you. We ask you to help us and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.